Welcome to Abstract, colon, the future of science. I'm your host, Jeremy Ullman, and today, as always, we are bringing unprecedented accessibility to graduate research. We recorded in the past, you're listening in the present, and we're discussing the future of science. Enjoy the show. Before we hop into things, here's a quick list of the kind of questions you can expect to be answered on today's episode. So, what is archaeology? What and how does it teach us about history? And what makes a fruitful archaeological site or exciting archaeological find? What is the process of archaeological discovery from dig to display case? What does the future of archaeology look like? How do we learn about abstract phenomena like culture through the discovery of physical objects? How do we define a civilization and what are its main characteristics? Answers to questions like these and many, 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 many more on today's episode of Abstract. So let's go. Avery Workington is currently a master student in classical archaeology at the University of Oxford. She completed her undergraduate degree in history and classics at McGill University in Montreal. In the broadest terms, she's passionate about historical education, archaeological conservation, and environmental sustainability. She hopes to pursue a career in objects conservation upon completion of her master's. Currently, her graduate research is focused on the artistic and archaeological manifestations of cultural interaction throughout the Roman provinces. Regions of interest include North Africa, Egypt, and Nubia, or modern-day Sudan. Born in Vancouver and a West Coast supremacist at heart, in her spare time she enjoys any activity that gets her out of doors, including hiking, long-distance running, and skiing. Otherwise, she can be found visiting museums, cooking vegan food, traveling, and attempting to learn too many languages at once. And we are graced by her presence today on Abstract, colon, the future of science. Avery, without further ado, welcome to the podcast. How's it going? Thanks for having me. I'm doing well. Very excited to be here. Very excited to chat all things archaeology. We're going to do all of that and more. And before anything else happens, I realized that going into this interview, I thought I knew what archaeology was, but at the same time, I feel like I might be missing the crux of the matter. So do you want to just fill me in right off the bat? What is archaeology in a nutshell? Yeah, for sure. Archaeology is, well, more than Indiana Jones would have you think. Archaeology is the study of old or ancient cultures through material culture. So through the objects and material remains that they left behind. So we're not talking about texts. We're not talking about literature or language necessarily. Those can all support archaeology, but we're talking about things. Trying to understand what was going on a long time ago via the things they left behind. Got it. So by looking at things, we can get kind of a, a window into some historical context. Exactly. Of some sort. Exactly. What are the limitations on the kinds of information that we can get from doing archaeological research? What kinds of things maybe do we learn about more than others? Good question. So it's kind of a double-edged sword. What makes archaeology, I think, important and unique is also part of its limitations. So archaeology, it's kind of this great equalizer in terms of you don't get to choose what you dig up. You don't get to choose what you find. You don't get to choose what these people might have left behind. You have to interpret all the evidence. And so that gives you 
a very unique insight into otherwise often marginalized or kind of underrepresented voices that might not exist in a textual record. So women, poor people, children, slaves, those kinds of communities. But that also means that we don't always have really good data because we don't get to choose what we dig up and what we find. So you have to kind of work with the hand that you're dealt in that way. So in terms of trying to apply the scientific method, you can't really start with like hypothesis testing. You just got to go into an archaeological dig with complete blind faith that something's going to happen and you don't know what's going on. Yes and no. So a big issue in kind of the history of archaeology has been kind of digging from conclusions. So the grandfather or the founder of archaeology is this guy named uh, Heinrich Schliemann, who is this German archaeologist in the early 1800s. And if you've ever heard of Homer and the Iliad and the Odyssey and obviously the the Trojan War, he basically says he wants to find Troy. And so he kind of founds the discipline of archaeology as a way to prove texts, as a way to prove his own conclusions and messes up all the evidence and messes up the archaeology in the process and basically bulldozes his way through all this other evidence in order to cherry pick what he wants for his own you know, for his own conclusions. So archaeologists, understandably, are very hesitant to ever start with founded conclusions or even a very firm hypothesis before you start excavating. But at the same time, to get research money, you have to propose and you have to explain why is this important? What might we find? So in that way, you do have to have kind of a framework of, of, of expectations, but you also have to be willing to adjust. So I think it's a lot more flexible kind of as a discipline in that way, where... Okay. You might have an idea or a hope of what you might find, and, and you should be well-informed before you start digging as to what could turn up. Uh, but if that's not what you find, you have to be okay with it, and you have to kind of adjust on the fly sometimes, yeah. Interesting. So what are you proposing that you are going to find when you carry out your research during this degree? So... I have not been able to lead my own excavation. I am not quite there yet. Uh-huh. But my my dream excavation, my research is focused primarily in North Africa and kind of Egypt in that area. And if I was to go perform excavations, I would probably be working at a site that's already been identified. So there's kind of been some preliminary work done. People have either, or the you know, let's say the ruins have been so obvious because it was a large, let's say, urban settlement that they've been there all the time. And so you have an idea of what might be there. And then the hope is that you maybe pick a section of a town or a city or a domestic maybe villa or settlement that hasn't been completely unearthed. You know something's there. You can see some remains maybe. Maybe there's some some kind of small finds, some pottery around. And then you hope to basically excavate down to whatever period that you're hoping to find so kind of the roman period the early roman imperial period zero to about 200 a.d um, is primarily what i research and so i would hope to be able to excavate down and find some really interesting things during that specific period um because most of the time it's kind of chronologically organized as to how what kind of research people do do you ever dream about finding like the perfect archaeological piece of evidence of something or other (laughs) and if so what are like what would be your dream find okay that is such a good question so on a very like large selfish scale it would be (laughs) incredible to find something like large statues or a large art object of some kind Mm -hmm. in a place that's completely unexpected like 
North Africa or Egypt, for example. Um, Egypt a little bit less so, but that would be incredible. Just just imagine, I think uh, if you if you look up older excavation photos, there's something so romantic about, especially the film, maybe black and white film photography, and you see these early excavations where they're, you know, brush in hand, brushing away the yeah. face of an Aphrodite statue. <laughs> like, that's that's so that's that that's the dream of any archaeologist, of course. But does that even exist anymore? Because as as someone who who has a bit of a background in physics and the hard sciences, I, I always fantasized about you know discovering some fundamental law of the universe that nobody else figured out yet. But it's easier to do that when you haven't had hundreds and hundreds of years of people thinking about these things. So, are people still brushing off the faces of of ancient monuments at the scale that you're dreaming of here, or is this really a pipe dream? It's more of a pipe dream for sure. But I think also one of the things that's attracted me to research kind of areas on the periphery rather than Italy or the Italian peninsula or if I was a Greek archaeologist, Greece and the Greek islands is because of its oversaturation in that way. You know, will more marble statues turn up in Italy? Yes, at some point, I'm sure there will be. There's more to find, there's more to excavate. But in areas that haven't been the kind of romantic focus of archaeologists for the past couple hundred years. I do think there's, well, there's there's a little bit more margin to dream in that way because people historically haven't really been interested or haven't thought these places were worthwhile. And then you do have these incredible, in North Africa, a lot of the time, they're these gorgeous mosaics. Um, but in Turkey, for example, they're excavating large-scale statuary, like I was talking about, at different sites really, really often uh, kind of excavation season after excavation season, there's incredible discoveries being made, which is really because no one was interested in looking there earlier. So there's this theme that I'm picking up on, which is that it's not just about what you're finding, but it's about where you're finding it. You made this really interesting comment about how it would be exciting to find some kind of old, large-scale artistic piece in a place where we wouldn't expect to have found it. Yes, Totally right. It's about it's about the what, but it's also about the where. Mm -hmm. I think a good archaeologist prioritizes both and knows how to synthesize both really well um, in order to either make an argument about things that have already been excavated. So it's not just about, you know, now when I might do, be doing research about architecture or art or or whatever it may be. You can't just look at the object itself and describe it and talk about its material. Where was it found? Um, when was it made? Where did it travel to? Those questions are equally as important. And that's also been a more recent shift because earlier, again, at the kind of foundation of archaeology, these were just artistic objects. No one had any interest in the kind of wear of it because they wanted to bring them back to a museum or to a private home and use them as, you know, artistic pieces in that way. But with ongoing excavations now, it has to be a combination of both. And the best research happens when you're kind of engaging both sides of that question. There seems to be this dichotomy as well in terms of archaeological sites that have already begun research. Yep. Or archaeological sites that have already been dug up to some degree and then kind of these like virgin lands that have yeah. yet to be touched. Are there specific kinds of archaeologists who maybe call themselves some different kind of archaeologists who specifically seek out these as-of-yet-undiscovered locations or as-of-yet-undug locations? And is there like a split down the middle of the field? Or is the dichotomy a little more subtle than that? 
I would say the dichotomy is a little bit more subtle than that, but it tends to kind of be drawn along research lines. So my context is the classical world, so ancient Greece and Rome, but this applies much more broadly as well, whether you're doing the ancient Near East or whether you're looking at ancient South American and Central American civilizations. If your research is just newer and the questions you're trying to ask just haven't been asked and been researched before, you're more likely to have to perform excavations on land that hasn't been excavated before. But at the same time, you can do a lot of innovative research with stuff that's already been dug up and stuff that's coming from sites that have existed for a while. At the same time, people might kind of change throughout their career as well as their research interests develop and change. Uh, that's quite common. So you start on one site and move to another, or you start on a site that's been excavated and you go, actually, there's more questions here that haven't been answered from this ongoing excavation. Let's start something new somewhere else. Mm-hmm. I want to slowly work from generalities towards like hyper-specifics here. That's, that's where my interests often lie. It's kind of zeroing in on the matter at hand. So when it comes to, for example, finding some artifact in an archaeological dig, how do we go from the finding of the object to actually making some coherent analysis about what it is, where it came from, who made it, what its significance is, maybe culturally, and drawing all these broader conclusions about history? To me, there, there's just this, like, this like, vast space between finding and then concluding something. Yeah, exactly. And also, I think the everyday person might go, or, or, or I would say, a lot of the time, public-facing archaeology exists in the form of museums, where things are kind of behind glass and in their finished product in that way, and they might have mm -hmm. a little write-up about, this is why it's significant, this is its meaning, this is what it's made of. And maybe this idea of, oh, I, I, I know what a dig looks like, or I've seen photos of an excavation or things like that. But you're right, that process from one point to the other, it's complicated, is the answer. Mm -hmm. uh, and it takes a lot of expertise that exists beyond just the archaeologist. So okay. you got a dig site that is headed by lead archaeologists, they're usually called. So they'll be professors usually at a university of some kind. Mm -hmm. Some professors are the ones actually doing the excavating. Some professors don't like to get their hands dirty, which hopefully is shifting towards the former as time goes on. But that was very much the tradition in the kind of gentleman scholar history of the archaeologist mm. in his white suit who kind of stands at the edge of a trench and waits for someone else to actually brush aside something of interest mm -hmm. before they want to get their shoes dirty. But I think now it's much more common for the archaeologist to be in the trench with 10, 20, 30, 40 more people that are just doing the exact same thing day after day and digging. So They'll have their section, you're digging through, and if you find something of interest, you stop immediately, and then a lot of documentation happens. So we're talking mm -hmm. photography, site drawings, feature drawings, you all, oftentimes you'll have things like GIS or like spatial survey that happens. In case you're wondering, GIS stands for Geographic Information System essentially a framework that provides the ability to capture and analyze spatial and geographic data. I'm actually looking to get a guest on the show to talk about this exact topic at some point in the future, so more on that down the line. And your goal is to record as much possible information about the context of an object. So when 
we're dealing with objects that have been excavated much earlier, the issue is often what we call lack of context. Someone dug something up and just pulled it out of the ground and then walked home with it, walked to the museum Mm -hmm. with it. So you have no idea what's around it, what its dating is. So we date things oftentimes by what's called stratigraphy. So basically a relative chronology. We know the date of this and we might know the date of this. And so this has to come earlier than this and this has to come earlier than this. And oftentimes those things, things like coins can be absolutely dated and then you Mm -hmm. can date things relatively based on that, which is super helpful. And then on the kind of more hard science part of this, you will often, when you have a find, you try and find something that's organic so that it can be radiocarbon dated. So wood, plant material, leather, so anything made of organic materials can then usually be absolutely dated via C14 dating carbon dating mm-hmm. um i actually never thought about the fact that carbon dating is for organic material but i guess that makes sense because organic means made yeah. of carbon yeah and also something like dendrochronology which is using wood fragments not necessarily tree rings but an actual chemistry analysis of wood can also be used to date things so that's how you might get a date and once you've done all your documentation then you're allowed to pull it out of the ground (laughs) and put it in a little baggie and then it gets sent off to probably a lab somewhere that's associated with the excavation site and you have someone that does all of the material analysis on it so what's it made out of where did that material come from if you can figure that out so for metals you can also often trace them really exactly because they'll have traces of the kind of environment where they were mined from and then after that you have to basically write an excavation report that then gets published so going through the whole publication process about what you found on that one season maybe of excavation and then it's public knowledge or as public knowledge is a published academic piece is And people can then use that information to create their own arguments and maybe ask the the why is this important question or what is this doing culturally question. And then it might end up in a museum eventually. Usually there's an agreement before an excavation starts as to where any of the material is going. So that's usually predetermined before you put a shovel in the ground. Oh, really? Mm Mm-hmm. Interesting, because before we were talking about how we often just go into these digs with no expectations, but now you're saying we already know exactly where something might end up before we even start digging. Well, it's the kind of covering your bases, because if someone wants to allow you to dig there, if it's private property or public property, if it's public land, then the local government or the federal government, whatever it may be, has kind of vested interest in whatever cultural heritage comes out of that place. If it's private land, if it's of monetary value, you want a piece of that. So... Now it's quite common practice to to articulate before things start going because even if you don't think you're going to find anything of value, heaven forbid you do, and then there's a big fight over it, which mm-hmm. has happened many times in the history of archaeology, for sure. I believe it. <laughs> Always politics, no matter where you go. Always. Whether it's with, you know, some southern Italian farmer or whether it's with, you know, the national government of Spain or Uh anywhere else. So I have a much better idea of the timeline from striking metaphorical gold to actually getting something into a glass case in a museum. So thank you for that great, great detailed explanation. I I now understand that there's also more, more people in more kinds of fields 
apart from just archaeologists. The archaeologists are, are there on site and then we have lab analysis, et cetera. We got museum mm-hmm. curation. So it's, a, it's an interdisciplinary endeavor, which is exactly. cool. So we're going to keep digging a little deeper. Good. And so ultimately, you can maybe tell me a bit about what you've learned about in your literature research so far or from what, what you've learned at this point. What are some of the things that we learn about humans or civilization uh, or history broadly through archaeology? Specific. I want to get specific here. What are we actually learning about history apart from that pottery was there, for example? Good question, because who cares about pottery, right? Let's be honest. Uh, I'm, mean, an ar- you know. I'm an archaeologist who doesn't really like pottery. And so... No. It's a bit blasphemous to say out loud. Um, I apologize to any archaeologist listening, but I have to use it. It's a tool. Do do I have to like it? Not necessarily. Mm -hmm. So archaeology gives us a much more holistic picture of a civilization, of a community, let's say. And I think it's the most comprehensive tool we have or field we have that allows us to investigate history so any other discipline even history is 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 reliant on very limited evidence very specific evidence that has been passed down via literature well who's writing literature elite men who's that's has then been passed down via the kind of textual transmission process of monks copying manuscripts copying manuscripts so in terms of how accurate that is, the point is that it's extremely limited in its scope. Archaeology allows us to learn about the everyday, what people are cooking, where people are living, how people are moving through spaces, what they're doing and what they and and, and what they value too. So what kind of objects they have in their home, what kind of trade is going on. It allows us an insight into the cultural, the social, the political, um, the economic. Uh, it gives such a comprehensive picture, if excavations are done right, of how a community functions and how it lives. And mm-hmm. I think it's really, really valuable in also like not not necessarily in and of itself. Of course, I think archaeology is the best because I'm an archaeologist. But I think also it's so valuable to people doing other research. If you're a literature person, if you're a history person, if you're a language person, archaeology provides you with, you know, kind of invaluable data in that way, whether it's via graffiti on the walls of Pompeii. What were people writing about? How did that function? What did, what did people's actual handwriting look like? And how how were they engaging in that kind of public space or you know you want to make a literature argument but you're not quite sure how families functioned or how the political sphere looked like well you can go walk through you know the public political forum and and read the archaeological research and what was found there and and you can look at domestic spaces from poor family all the way up to the emperor it gives you a broad range of kind of lenses through which to ask different research questions uh which i think is so different than a lot of other disciplines and 
you know, pun intended, it's just very grounded in a way that I think a lot of a lot of other disciplines aren't. It's holistic, it's comprehensive, but it's also, you know, minutely detailed. And, you know, you have the, the, the smallest little objects can tell you so much. And you kind of get both. You get both ends of the spectrum. Excellent. It's a lot You're making there. a good case for it. Yeah, it's a yeah. lot. Lots here, which is, which is good. That's why we're here. Have you ever wanted to learn how to develop healthy, strong, and sustainable habits? Well, luckily, you don't have to go it alone. I just increased my chances of forming and sticking to my new habits by signing up for a weekly three-minute newsletter called The Habit Society. I know the co-founders personally, and I'm becoming increasingly involved in this awesome network of like-minded individuals. Part habit formation guide and part accountability community, I'm proud to call myself a member of The Habit Society. It's completely free to join and get a beautifully curated newsletter sent right to your inbox every Monday. If you're looking to shake things up, I'm putting a link to subscribe in the description of the episode. And you can also check them out on Instagram and Twitter at The Habit Society. All right, back to the episode. So is it, is it correct if I say that archaeology is almost like a sub-discipline of history? Or that it feeds into history as a whole? Is, is either of those correct, yes or no? I would go with number two. I number think two. Okay. They kind of, there, there's this term, you know, archaeology as history's crutch has okay. sometimes been said. And I think archaeologists have really pushed back on that and have said, we are our own discipline, but we want other fields to value our research and to use our research much more readily. Interesting. Because I, I feel yeah. like in that phrase... It, it, it actually brings a certain humility um, and allure to archaeology, being history's crutch, because history is like the big umbrella term. If your history is crutch, that means history needs you, and that means you got leverage, yeah. which is a great position to be in. Maybe I'm anthropomorphizing uh, archaeology too much here, but, is, but you're definitely making a great point for it. I, I think it's kind of a bit ironic because that I, I would agree with that interpretation as well, but I think it's, has been, it was kind of a backhanded compliment in a way uh-huh. where... Um, sure. You can't support yourself. You basically need history, even though, and it's kind of this idea that a bad historian uses archaeology. Like if you can't make an argument from the texts, you uh-huh. use archaeology to make whatever argument you want. You're not a true historian if you're using archaeology. Like you should be able to interpret this from other evidence. But yeah, and also, yeah. and also, I think archaeology expanding much more into STEM and kind of scientific archaeology has really set it apart from the humanities disciplines in which it, it, it originally started and originally evolved. Cool. I got nothing bad to say about archaeology. I am an objective observer here. <laughs> I will not comment on the position of archaeology within the larger historical sphere. Objectivity, objectivity. Perfect. Exactly. So, question. Mm-hmm. How do we measure things that are more abstract in archaeology? Things like culture, for example. How do we learn about culture through physical objects? Great question. This is basically my research, and it's a question that doesn't necessarily have a single answer. I think the thought is that, and the approach and the kind of underlying assumption is that material tells us something about culture regardless of, of if that was the intention or not in the material's creation how you build spaces, what you choose in terms of the architecture of spaces, 
you know, that, that's a conscious decision on the part of architects and designers, but whether they were thinking, oh, this is meant to say this specific thing about our culture, probably not. That's usually my argument. There's not necessarily the same kind of consciousness, but it tells us something about the culture. It tells us about what was valued, what was desirable, what was in fashion, what the economy looked like, how wealthy people were, how wealthy a city was, what they might be trying to say in terms of their choices that they're making. That might be architecture. Are they building things that are very monumental? Are they using new forms? Are they using kind of a hybrid form that is maybe something very local and not so monumental, but are also incorporating columns from Rome on top of a more North African looking stepped flat building. So that's an example of the fact that this can kind of be applied to any object you find. So whether that's how people practiced religion, what's found at religious sites, votive offerings, or just kind of everyday objects as well. We'll tell you about the kind of everyday lived experience of the culture, whether those objects were meant to be, quote-unquote, cultural objects. Mm -hmm. How often do we see archaeological researchers superimposing their own thoughts and beliefs about, you know, ancient intentionality? And are you and other people bothered by this? Is it a problem? Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. It's the... <laughs> so the most obvious example also is kind of this idea that, oh, I have no idea what it is. It's religious. That's that's <laughs> the... Don't know what it is. Oh, just mark it down as a ritual object. Great. Interesting. These mysterious ancients with, with their funny religious practices. Ugh. You know, that is very, <laughs> very, very common and really? is is an ongoing joke that any archaeologist will will attest to in that way. But intentionality is a huge question because it it can't be measured. So we can quantify things. We can say this is how many objects of this kind were found in these spaces. This is how similar all of this architecture in these different towns looked. So that might say, okay, well, th th these towns look the same. They might have a shared culture. There might be some intention there as to the building processes. But humans are incredibly complex and the decision-making processes in terms of production of things like I was talking about in terms of excavating a single object it has to go through a lot of different people and so measuring intentionality is is difficult in that way and I think there's been a pushback from earlier especially in the Roman world, this idea that like, oh, the emperor could just kind of wave a hand and and everything was his decision and all of these portraits automatically emerged and all of these architectural forms magically just happened all over the Roman Empire in the same way. But there's a pushback in terms of allowing more local populations or indigenous populations more intention and more agency in that process. And then there's the kind of even pushback on that interpretation where, where it says... We can't really measure anyone's intentionality. Like it's going through kind of so many filters and so many hands that kind of everyone had their hand in it. And so that was a non-answer basically to that question. And I do apologize, but <laughs> intentionality. I don't like when people, yeah, approach a site or approach an object with a definitive answer that this is what they meant to do from the beginning. 
unless there's very definitive proof, like a plaque that says, so-and-so founded this for this person on this date because they're praising the emperor, which happens. It does happen, but most of the time not. That's a dream find right there. That's a dream find, exactly. <laughs> That's a dream find. If You know what? Maybe we should make sure that right now, like in the current moment, we should make a lot of plaques for things so that <laughs> future archaeologists have an easier time. Well, that's true. I've, there's an exercise and my undergraduate supervisor would do in her intro to archaeology class and she would go, look around your room and pick an object or two. And if, you know, if this collapsed or if, or if this was even just filled with dirt uh, and someone was to dig it up, wh- how would you interpret any of the, of the evidence that that is there? And some of the objects that we use on a day-to-day bas- basis and seem incredibly obvious to us are not all that obvious. And so... I do, I do think about that or when I'm trying to interpret objects that seem to be quite ambiguous or, or whatnot and people ascribe. Such as? So things like little like just like bowls and trays and things like that. So think about how similar something like I'm looking around my room and I have, okay, I have dishes, but I also have, you know, like little bowls that hold my keys and little bowls that hold my earrings. And I also have mm-hmm. a little flat tray that just has pens and pencils on it. And and in my mind, okay, maybe the only difference is between eating and not eating. But to an archaeologist, would you be able to differentiate between any of these? Mm-hmm. Would you say that they're all really important in the same way? And would you say that because there's so many of them, these must have been a really important object? You, and right. those arguments have been said, like, oh, man, there's 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 12 trays that we found in this one room. Like, my goodness. They must, must love be, trays. It must be, like, religious because it's so important to them. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, my earring tray is religious. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Not uh-huh. quite. So it's, right. it's, you know, it's you have to be humble, like you said earlier. I think you have to be willing to understand that any argument you make is fallible. Fair. Totally fair. I've got just an infinite amount of questions. Like every time you answer something, it just a hundred million new questions pop in. So we're going to try and uh, do some maybe more like rapid fire style question answer. Let's just get like super condensed. First, first thing that comes to mind. Perfect. Okay. I was reading a book. Uh, long story short, there was this passage, that, uh, just this little quote that I want to share with you. I want to get your, your thoughts on it. Okay. So the line was very simply, all civilizations are cultures. But not all cultures are civilizations. What do you think about this? My instinctual reaction is, yes, that makes sense. You can have shared culture without a physical civilization. Upon further thought, I also think that you can have civilizations that don't have a single homogenous culture. And that's, I get that it's simplistic. I get that's the point of the quote. It's very catchy. It's very soundbitey. But I'm a 75% on the Uh agree. Okay. What was the first civilization, might I ask? Do you know? Do we know? Do we know? Um, I guess you would probably say early Mesopotamian civilization. So kind of in the modern day Turkey region, earliest towns versus earliest civilization is a bit hard to describe. But yeah, Central Asia, Turkey, etc. Basically, the precursors to Babylon would be the earliest civilization. What are the characteristics of a civilization that differentiate it from things that would be pre-civilization, for example? Okay, wow. This is <laughs> the most difficult question archaeologists have asked. Oh, can ask. Okay. This is the question. So what's oh, the earliest wow. civilization? Basically, agriculture, which some archaeologists would disagree with. So agriculture is a mark of basically consistent urban living, in a way, organizations, so some kind of societal st- structure, some kind of economy 
in some way. So it doesn't necessarily mean a monetary economy that emerges much later, but that market would be a mark of civilization. A lot of people would argue writing in some way, although again, a bit of a contentious topic among archaeologists as to whether as soon as writing emerges, we have civilization. But basically, that's kind of been challenged by a lot of the time South American cultures, which definitely were civilizations, but didn't have writing in the same way. I'm sure I am missing very key points, but that would be that would be what I would say. Okay, those are some of the fundamentals. Excellent. You're doing great. Thank you. Archaeology is focused on understanding history. In a weird way, I kind of want to know what you think the future of archaeology is going to look like. How in the future are we going to learn about history via archaeology? Is that an answerable question? Yeah, that's an answerable question. Okay, I let's do it. My hope is that it's archaeology is going to become even more kind of interdisciplinary than it is right now. So I kind of mentioned earlier this shift towards integration of STEM subjects in archaeology. So things like biological analysis, chemistry analysis in, in archaeology. And there's also a shift in terms of geography and so GIS, magnetometry, geospatial analysis, and... There's even been this kind of shift towards using a lot of times like satellite data and and working with space agencies and private defense corporations oftentimes to use their data in terms of archaeological site identification and preservation. So my hope is that it becomes more interdisciplinary, and I think that's where it's going. So what's also been really interesting is using archaeology. I think we think about it really in terms of the ancient past, but there's a whole subfield emerging in terms of just kind of much more recent history. So using archaeology to excavate, for, for example, slave plantations in the southern United States and kind of filling in much more modern history gaps. I think mm-hmm. that's going to really grow in the years to come. Excellent answer. I look forward to seeing what the future of archaeology looks like once we I get do there. too. Okay. This is a question... We're, we're, we're coming in on close. Okay? okay, I got two more questions for you. One of them is from a great friend and longtime listener of Abstract. His name is Josh Goldberg from Montreal, and he has a question. So essentially, there's this current movement that is surrounding this idea of returning objects back to governments who, you know, control the countries where certain finds came from. So as an archaeologist... How do you reconcile this dilemma of wanting to dig up objects for preservation in maybe Western countries or elsewhere, but you also know at the same time these objects don't belong to those institutions? Should there be a a global effort to return objects, or is it kind of like more finders keepers? Great question. Really glad we got to the topic of repatriation. I think that it is vitally important for archaeologists nowadays to be engaged on the question and to hopefully hold the opinion that repatriation is extremely valuable. So coming back to my comment about deciding where finds go before you before you start digging, Mm -hmm. that has emerged from these discussions of object locations, object heritage, object repatriation. So the agreement now almost always is that whatever is dug up we'll use for our research and document as much as we need to, but will be kept in some sort of national museum or local site or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't answer the question of what to do with objects that are 
already in Western museums that have been forcibly taken, oftentimes um, violently taken. And so I'm a huge proponent of repatriation. Um, One, for the fact that museums are bloated with objects and they have an overabundance of things that they could display. And so I think that if archaeology is going to progress and evolve in a way that's most beneficial, I don't think it costs Western museums and Western countries all that much to own up to the fact that these objects don't belong there, that they should probably be returned. It's funny that you mentioned kind of this like culpability. It's almost like, even though we know it's good for us, we don't want to admit previous fault. Absolutely. It's like, oh yeah, we've been hoarding your stuff. Maybe we'll just kind of keep it on the DL and mm-hmm. <laughs> and just sit tight until someone calls us out for it. The thought is that it's kind of going to open the floodgates. So if we repatriate these smaller objects that might not even be on display or that most people don't really care about besides the culture that they were taken from, who's to say that then we won't be required to yeah return the Parthenon marbles, the huge, beautiful Greek sculptures that that we took from Greece in the 1800s. Crazy. It's a conundrum, right? No one wants to open the floodgates. Nobody wants to uh, start this runaway effect. And then obviously it's going to be, no, no, don't take all this away. Now we have to return everything? Um, One note, Professor Dan Hicks here at Oxford does fantastic work on decolonization and repatriation. And it's just an extremely cool guy. He just did a whole, he published a book called The Brutish Museum on the British Museum and just did a whole um, kind of, tour and roundtable talk actually with mc hammer who wow is a is really into this discussion has become a big voice so professor dan hicks i have to give him a shout out he is the man on this topic okay is there some kind of link to something related to this we could put in the description of the episode absolutely i'll link to his profile at oxford as well as uh, a link to his newly published book this year or end of last year the brutish museum awesome we're gonna do it Okay, so good. Uh, This is just, I was so excited for this interview because this topic is so kind of out of my general domain of expertise. (laughs) So thank you for invigorating archaeology for me and invigorating me vis-a-vis archaeology. Final question, you ready? I'm ready. All right, excellent. It's more of like a thought experiment kind of deal. So I want you to imagine that you are standing at the foot of an auditorium, maybe the Coliseum even. And, <laughs> and it's, it's just, it's packed to the brim. All eyes are on you. What do you tell the audience? What do I tell the audience? Go meet an archaeologist. Go to your local museum and ask questions about what you see. And my other thought would be, it's okay to like Indiana Jones because that's what got us all into archaeology. But then go meet a real archaeologist because there is so much that you can do and you can learn. It is unending. Awesome. I'll take you up on that. Once museums are all open and everything's ready, I'm on my way there. I can promise you that. Good. That's what I want to hear. This post-COVID world. We're doing it. We're figuring out history one archaeological dig at a time. Avery, thank you so much for being on the show. Seriously, this was a very, very unique episode and just a a great conversation overall. I learned a lot and I thank you for it. Thanks for having me. This has been just so fun to talk about my research with 
with someone whose only job is to be or pretend to be interested. <laughs> I hope that the, the interest comes across as organic in this case. Good. It has. And true. Excellent. All right, Avery, have a lovely afternoon. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, you can check us out at abstractcast on Instagram. If you have any feedback, please feel free to leave a comment on the post for the current or any previous episode that you might have listened to. Or if you're a graduate student and you would like to be on the podcast yourself, you can drop us a line at abstractcast at gmail.com. This podcast will be released weekly on Sundays and is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much everywhere else you're going to find podcasts. So feel free to check us out around the internet. Until then, take it easy. Take it easy.